Thinkest thou not, Jesus says, that I cannot now pray to my Father, and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels? Quite a thought-provoking question, is it not? And we're going to take some time on that. Let's pray together, and we'll ask God to bless us. Oh, Father, we thank you as we come to church for the living word, Jesus Christ himself, who, because he lives, is in our midst, for he so promised, lo, I am with you always, even to the consummation of the age. Thank you that we don't worship someone who is dead. We worship someone who is living. And the living power of the living Christ is here to bless us today and most especially works through the power of the Holy Spirit through the written word. And so when we think about the Bible giving expression to your truth, to your person, to your will, we realize these words are living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. May we have reverence for them as we read them, as we listen to them. Help us, Father, to open our hearts Help us to find grace to be delivered from distractions and bodily weaknesses so that we might gain every blessing that you might have for us. And I thank you, dear Father, and I'm sure each who is here also does, that you know our down-sitting, you know our uprising, you understand our thoughts afar off. You're able to meet us in the need that we have today, whether anybody else knows that or not whether it's the furthest thing from the preacher's mind when he utters some thought in the message, you're able, and we know this, and we thank you. And so I pray for God's people today, Lord. They they have come gathered to worship you, and each of us has needs. And so I pray, Father, that we will open our hearts to the ministry of your word and the Holy Spirit, and that uh, you would give us that which we need and uh, energize us, strengthen us, refresh us, revive us, help us. And then, Father, if we have any in our midst today or any listening through some other opportunity later on who doesn't know Christ as Savior, then truly our prayer, Father, is that the person will be drawn to you. We certainly have a graphic portrayal of your love as exhibited in this passage today. And so use what we talk about to reach and draw us to yourself, whether we are Christian folk or whether we are not. Thank you that you love us all and you desire us all. And we pray these things now in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Penetrating questions of Jesus. You know, as I have thought about so many of these, and you are sort of attuned to it as you read the Gospels, I've almost thought of a complimentary series. I don't know that I'll do it just because I don't want too much of a similar thing. But when you read through the Gospels and you look for these questions of Jesus and you pick out the ones that you feel are most penetrating, as it were, that we might consider them, you also find a number of questions that were directed to Jesus or that the disciples asked. And sometimes the questions people ask are very enlightening and very interesting. However, that's a different thought. This morning we have selected a number of these and we are still pursuing that. I remind you as we draw ever closer to Easter that it has so worked out providentially, and I thank the Lord for that, that we are able to look at a number of these questions that come naturally in the series, especially as we kind of get late into Matthew's gospel that enable us to be in Passion Week. And really, the last three messages have all been drawn, one from Tuesday, that so-called day of controversy that I mentioned, And then on Thursday, we have two messages. So the day of the Passover, we have already had two messages. 
And we have an additional one this morning that comes from Thursday of what we call Passion Week or Holy Week, which is the time of the Last Supper, and it's also the culmination of the Upper Room Discourse, and it's also the prayer in Gethsemane and ultimately the betrayal by Jesus. So these things help us all, I think, to get into the spirit of those things that are happening in the church calendar and what we think about this time of the year. Kind of interesting, I have called your attention to verse 53, but you read this and there are actually, in the grouping of verses that we read this morning, there are actually four questions that Jesus asked. We're only looking at one of them this morning, but look up at verse 50 for a moment. It says that Jesus said unto him, that's Judas, friend, wherefore art thou come? There are a lot of things that you can meditate in the words that Jesus directed to Judas in that question. Not our message this morning. Verse 53 has the one we are looking at. The third one is found in verse 54. Jesus asks this question, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? And we'll sort of glance off of that in the course of the message, but it's not our main text. That's the third one. And in verse 55, you have the fourth one. After you get past the opening part of this, he addresses the multitudes and it says, are you come out as against a thief with swords and staves or clubs for to take me? And that too is a really interesting question, but you can't do them all. So this morning, I wanna look at the one that we have in verse number 53. Thinkest thou not that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. Probably of the four, and probably of many, that's the most familiar. And you know one of the reasons that it's familiar to us is because that verse is so well known, and that verse has so worked in different hearts over the years, that a man by the name of Ray Overholt, a man who originally was in show business, but wrote this song, he could have called 10,000 angels. He wrote that song in 1958, was converted and became a singer and a preacher and a songwriter, Ray Overholt. Wrote that song in 1958. So that's another thing that sort of keeps us in familiar, familiarity with this particular verse. I'll come back to that story later in the message towards the end. As I said in my introduction this morning earlier in the service, the lesson that I want to take from this is in the direction of service because I think we can see three things. I'll use three key words to draw your attention, one each to these points about service that I believe are modeled. We can take application from it in the life of Jesus. And the first word that I want to use is the word privilege. Did you know that Christian service is a privilege? Throughout all the course of my ministry, I have said that to people, and throughout all the course of my ministry, I keep saying it to myself. Service is a privilege. And it's something we really need to be reminded of because it is very easy for us to lose that perspective. It is very easy for us to dip into the trough of a bad attitude or griping or complaining when in reality we have the greatest privilege in the world, number one, to be a Christian, and number two, to serve Jesus Christ with our lives. How do we see that in these particular verses? Well, take a look at the story. The prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane draws to a conclusion. And as that prayer draws to a conclusion, a multitude of people approach. This is quite a throng. 
almost mob-like in some ways. John's gospel tells us, or what we have in Matthew tells us, that they come with swords as against a thief. They come with clubs. John's gospel tells us that they come with lights and torches. And John also tells us a detail that we aren't looking here because we aren't turning, but in John chapter 18 and verse 3, he also tells us that these people who came from the high priests and elders of the people actually had given to them a band of soldiers. Now that is very interesting because if you look at that word, it's actually a technical word for a Roman cohort. Now we know something about the legion because that's actually in our text today. But under that you would have a cohort. Well, do you know that if a Roman cohort was dispatched at full strength, do you have any idea of how many men that would be? Probably not, but I'll tell you just because it's interesting, 600. So I rather don't know whether or not you actually have it taken in the fullest literal sense of that particular number, but one thing it certainly tells us is that they were leaving nothing to chance. These Jews wanted to be sure that, that, that came from the elders and the chief priests and scribes to arrest Jesus. They already had this plan arranged with Judas. They already knew how they were going to identify Jesus. They already had inside information that came to them through Judas that Jesus would almost certainly be in the Garden of Gethsemane. But they didn't necessarily know that there would only be 13 people there. Jesus, well, if you exclude Judas at the time 12 Jesus and 11 of the disciples wow talk about overkill they weren't leaving anything to chance and Luke tells us something interesting Luke tells us in chapter 22 verse 49 in his account of this he says that when the disciples who were with Jesus saw what was happening saw this angry mob coming saw these people with clubs saw these people with swords it's rather interesting they too had swords that's really interesting. And they actually ask Jesus in Matthew twenty-two forty-nine, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? You can think about that a little bit. There's a lot to think about there. But it's only one of them who is more impetuous by nature. Can you identify? See, we're not poking fun. We're not making criticism. I see me, I see you sometimes. We all do this. I mean, I have to take my hat off to Peter a whole lot more than I worry about mistakes he made just for the fact that you have to give him credit for the audacity of such a thing when you really think about it. All this throng coming, as I have described, even soldiers with them. And Peter has enough at the point that this happens at least, remember he's already promised these things about he won't leave Jesus, he won't forsake Jesus, even if all others have done that, he won't. And he steps to the front and pulls out a sword and lops off the ear. Tim was reading that and I laughed. It just, I, don't, I mean, I guess it wasn't funny for the guy. But thinking about Peter doing this just kind of brought a chuckle to me and he lops off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Matthew doesn't tell us it's Peter. Did you know that Matthew doesn't tell us it's Peter? Mark doesn't tell us it's Peter. Luke doesn't tell us it's Peter. John has that detail too. I sometimes find humor in that. John ratted him out. He also gives us the name of the man who was the servant of the high priest whose ear got cut off. His name was 
Malchus. Well, whatever you think about this action on the part of Peter, it drew a rather swift admonition from Jesus. And Jesus told him to put up his sword again into its place and said, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Now look, I don't really want to get distracted from my message. But I will tell you this, if you think you find a verse there for gun control, you're wrong. And the reason that I take the trouble to point that out is because I know that's a hot subject. I know that people are divided over it. I'm not seeking to bring that argument before us today. I'm simply pleading that we be honest with the scripture and that we take our verses in context because if Jesus were really concerned, if Jesus were a total pacifist, this is where I'm headed with this, if Jesus were a total pacifist, if Jesus thought that it was wrong on any occasion under any circumstances to own a weapon, have a weapon, or to protect yourself, he wouldn't have allowed the disciples to have them particularly when they were so-called on professional duty, when they were with him on occasions like this. But they had them because if they hadn't had them, they couldn't have possibly said, shall we smite with the sword? Well, they not only had them, but there was another occasion, and again, we aren't going to take a lot of time for this, when Jesus said, well, (laughs) he told them to buy. And you probably can look that verse up. So let's put that aside right now. Jesus is not admonishing Peter because Peter is wrong to have a sword. Jesus is admonishing Peter for a different reason. And the reason that he is admonishing him is set against the backdrop. Think about this. One man with a puny sword. And Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, who says to Peter, don't you realize? Don't you realize that I could pray right now to my father and that he would presently he would right now dispatch more than 12 legions of angels to deliver me from this so what's peter with his puny sword do you see the what i'm saying trying to say to you here this morning that's why he admonishes him because peter has totally missed everything that jesus has tried to instill in them about what's going to happen that night and why he's tried to instill in them that he's going to give his life on the cross of Calvary. He has no intention to resist, not because he believed in total non-resistance, but because this wasn't the time. He was giving his life and surrendering himself to God's will, and it was that intervention on the part of Peter and that inability to have perceived that that Jesus was dealing with. Well, if you want something to maybe help you see even how much more puny it really was you have one man i'm not even talking about how ridiculous one man was against that crowd i'm talking about the contrast between what peter is trying to do to help jesus out and what jesus had at his beck and call so i mentioned to you the other day in one of the messages that you see some different figures sometimes you see the figure five thousand sometimes you see the figure six thousand but Let's go with 6,000 this morning for the sake of argument. 12 times 6, 72. Jesus says, don't you realize I can pray right now and I'll have 72,000, more than 72,000 angels dismissed. That's a lot of infantry. I don't think one sword amounted to too much against that. And Jesus wanted Peter to see that. 
He wanted Peter to see how puny and unneeded what he offered was in the light of Jesus' power and Jesus' ability to summon 12 legions of angels. And in this admonition, I think we have our first lesson about service And that's privilege, and the reason I call your attention to this point is because you know what Jesus was saying to Peter was, you know what, I don't need this. I don't have to have this. Say that to yourself one time. And it's kind of a waker-upper. I don't need you. And that sounds stark, but did you know that that's true? God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. That's sobering reality check because so many times we just get to drifting away from this and we don't recognize the fact that, you know, service, Christian service is a privilege. If you don't want to do it, God can raise up somebody else who will. Do you remember the time that Jesus was talking to the Jews? This was recorded for us in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 9. And some of these Jews and Pharisees, these Pharisees and so forth that were criticizing about the baptism of John, and Jesus made a statement to them. He said this, And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. God is able of these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Boy, that's, as I say, that's a, little, that's a sobering reality check. The, these folks who had gotten so smug, these folks that really thought they were hot stuff, these folks that thought that somehow God couldn't replace them and God couldn't do anything without them. And Jesus was saying to them, look at the stones. The Holy Land's got a ton of them. Way more than a ton, but you get the expression. I mean, the, the Holy Land has stones everywhere. Jesus said, look at them. Out of those stones, God can raise up children to Abraham. You know, folks, there's not only a little bit of an admonition in this, there's a lot of comfort in it. When you go through times in your life where you maybe experience a loss, a church sometimes goes through this. Uh, We actually have this coming up in our church, and I don't mean to call undue attention to it, but sometimes it's important just to encourage people. But, you know, we have a staff member. He's moving on. He's having an opportunity. We rejoice with him. But there can always be antsiness, anxiety, because we know how much work he does and we know how much he's done for us. And we think to ourselves, how are we going to get this done? Well, it's worth thinking about. I mean, it's worth having a conversation about. God's not wanting you to check your brains at the door and God doesn't put any premium on ignorance. But if you're going to go home at night and think that God can't do it, If you're going to go home at night and worry all night long because you think that any human being is irreplaceable, whether it's me or anybody else in this room, if you don't think that God has the resources always to meet our needs, well, there's a real message of comfort there. He says to Peter, I don't need a puny sword. I've got more than 12,000 of angels that I can call, 12, 000, uh, 12 legions of angels that I can call. Do you remember that story back in the book of 2 Kings chapter 6? That story where Elisha is the prophet and he's got the servant there with him and the king of Syria is highly agitated with Israel. He says, every time I go camp somewhere, he knows I'm going to be there. They know I'm there. And I'm ready to ambush them. I'm ready to do a job on them. And they, they know and they move and they're not there. And someone said, well, you know, that guy Elisha, that prophet in Israel, he can tell 
he can tell the king of Israel what you say in your bedchamber. Wow. He says, where is that guy? They said in Dothan. He dispatched all kind of troops. They came up there in the night. They surrounded that city. Remember this story? They surrounded that city. And when the servant of the man of God woke up in the morning and saw all those Syrian troops that they had barricaded around that city, they were in there, they were in bad trouble from a human standpoint. And he said to Elisha about it, and Elisha prayed a prayer, and he said, Lord, I pray thee, open his eyes. And when he opened his eyes and the servant looked out at the mountains around the city, the mountains were lined with horses and chariots of fire. And that's potent. I mean, God has resources that you can't see. God has resources that you can't dream of. And the moment we forget that and the moment we begin to worry or to think that we are irreplaceable or that and we kind of drift into a complaining mode is to lose exactly the lesson that Jesus was trying to admonish Peter here that, you know, service is a privilege. God can find someone else if we get too our big, big for our britches. I read the story of a medical student. He was in the operating room, and he was in the operating room with a, like a world-class surgeon, so this was a real opportunity. But he was a student, so he was there to observe. And it was a great opportunity. Well, unfortunately, the surgeon's assistant didn't show up. And so the surgeon turned to the guy who was his medical, the medical student who was in the room. And he said, you come help me with this operation. Help me save this man's life. The medical student remarked later how proud I was to help this great man save a life. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm telling you here something this morning. We have a privilege greater even than that. How proud, in a right sense, we can be that Jesus has called us, given us the privilege to serve him, whether we do it in a full-time occupation or whether we do it day by day. How proud we should be that sinners such as we are, people who don't deserve anything but God's wrath, have not only been redeemed, but given the opportunity to serve the King of kings and Lord of lords and do something that matters for eternity with our lives instead of throwing them away. And we're doing something more than saving lives, as important as that is. Every time we win someone to Christ, every time we influence some Christian young person who sees the example and who hears the words of mentoring and who follows a quiet, godly example and ends up in Christian service, it's a whole lot more than saving a life. Because that stone you throw in the pond from that one person ripples out, and you may never know what shore it reaches, but God knows. Secondly, after privilege, let's make another observation that we see in Jesus about Christian service. Let's talk about attitude. You know, attitude is always important. And Patch the Pirate, what's he talk about? The gratitude attitude. Attitude is really important, and we see it in verse number 53. Going to take a, another little uh, opportunity to kind of see that in this. Verse 53, when they ask that, Jesus asks 
thinkest thou not that I cannot now pray to my father and he shall presently give me more than 12 legions of angels. Well, where am I headed with this? I'll tell you in advance and then preach my way back to it again. So he's trying to say to Peter, don't you realize I'm here voluntarily? I'm not here because I have to be. And if I want to interrupt this, I can just pray. But I'm not here voluntarily. I'm not here because someone forced me into this. I'm here because I love my Father and I delight to do His will. You know, there are some things in those words that you can see. It's almost as if Jesus was saying to Peter, don't you realize I can pray? Think about those words for a moment. Just park on that for a minute. Thinkest thou not that I cannot now pray to my Father? So here's a question. Had they ever seen Jesus pray before? They sure had. Wow, had they ever. I mean, Luke tells us in chapter 6 how Jesus, before he selected the 12 apostles, continued all night in prayer to God. We are reminded in a different verse, in Matthew chapter 14, verse 23, after that feeding of the 5,000, how Jesus sent the disciples away, not just the 5,000, even his own disciples, he tucked them off into the boat and said, you go now on to the other side. And he went up into a mountain to be with God alone and to pray. So they had seen him pray on many, many occasions, and they knew what that was and Peter somehow seems to have forgotten that in fact folks you know they had seen him pray so effectively and so often and with such a godly example that on one occasion they said Lord teach us to pray well had Peter forgotten that Jesus could pray after all wasn't he there praying in the garden I guess maybe they shouldn't have fallen asleep so much Had Peter, had the other disciples forgotten that Jesus not only could pray, but that Jesus had the resources of heaven? After all, hadn't he done all these miracles in their midst? And I mean personal ones. I mean, let's let's not think about stuff that Jesus did for other people. Let's think about stuff Jesus did for them. There were two storms that we know about on the Sea of Galilee while those guys were out there with Jesus in the boat. And I've talked to you before about how scary that is. If you've never been out on the boat, uh, on the water, when it gets rough and the waves get big, you want to get a fright one time, go there. It's not anything anybody can really describe for you, especially if you can't see any land. These guys could see land. But they were out there on two occasions, and on one of the occasions the wind began to blow and it was boisterous and all this kind of thing. And they woke him up and they said, Master, carest thou not that we perish? And he said to the winds and waves, Hush, be muzzled. We've got that little old peace be still. But it's hush, be muzzled. And they wonder, what manner of man is this who commands even the winds and the waves and they obey him? Well, well, that's a good question too. That's one they ask. That's the other series. What manner of man is this? What manner of man is this? Well, if they didn't know, he did it again. After that feeding of the 5,000, when he sent them out there and those winds came up and that storm came up and then he came walking to them on the water and they were petrified. And he said, be not afraid, it is I. And Peter said, well, if it's you, bid me come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on. He got down out of the boat and that same thing got to him. He got to looking at those waves. He got to listening to that wind. He began to sink 
Jesus reached out, and Peter said exactly what the others said on the other occasion. He said, Lord, save me. They said on the other occasion, Lord, save us. And the moment, the moment, folks, somehow this is right down where you and I live. Somehow we've got to recognize Jesus can do that anytime he wants to. He intervened when they said, Lord, save us, and delivered them. He has the resource of prayer, and he has the resources of heaven, and we don't always know his will. You might pray that prayer, and like Paul did. Paul had that thorn in the flesh, and he was real eager for the Lord to deliver him from that, and it just wasn't God's plan. That's what this song that we just heard is all about. But they'd seen that. That's my point. They should have known. Well, we should have known a lot of stuff too. Peter should have realized that Jesus could have intervened. In other words, again, the whole point, everything that Jesus was doing there was voluntary. He had told them his service to his father was never grudging or of necessity. Remember the great verse from Isaiah 53, as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He could have opened his mouth. He could have called 10,000 angels but he didn't he didn't because he was there voluntarily he could have he was never there because of coercion when God said and this is recorded for us in Psalm 40 and it's quoted by the author to the Hebrews in that New Testament book chapter 10 verses 5 through 7 when God said, sacrifice and burnt offering thou didst not desire. Then said I, lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written of me. I delight to do thy will, O my God. Yea, thy law is within my heart. I mean, ever and always, Jesus' example of service before them was one of cheerful, joyful response to the love of the Father. And does not Paul come along and tell us the same thing when he says in his own life, the love of Christ constraineth us. We look at how great is the love of Christ for us and we are so overawed by it. We are so hushed by it, as I said the other Wednesday night in a message, that we, our hearts become tender. We surrender to do his will, not because someone makes us do it, but because we love him. And we're responding to how much he loves us. I don't know if I've told you this story before, but if I have, don't worry. You'll enjoy it again, and boy, does it pack a punch. If it doesn't pack one to you, it knocks me off my feet. So I guess that's maybe why I want to tell it. It fits here. Do you think about what has happened with computers? I mean, we have people here all different ages so some people just were born and grew up as if that was the way it always was but you know three generations ago the man who was the chairman of IBM said there probably is a need for five in the whole world it's true as recently as 1976 the president of digital digital equipment said there was no reason that anyone would want a computer in his home My wife is in the nursery, so I hope they've got those speakers turned off. 
when we came to Huntingdon, we had an Epson computer. I guess it used a five and a half inch floppy. I remember the processor speed, 12 megahertz. Now you go buy a laptop and it's like four gigahertz. But my wife said, well, why don't you just take the computer and you'll have it in your office? And I said to her, what would I need with a computer in my office? Now, I have to get even. So I'll tell you the other side of that, that there was an occasion that I surprised her for the first time with a, I believe it was an iPad. It was either an iPad or an iPhone. One of the two. She opened up the box and she said, what would I do with one of these? So it's sort of tit for tat. We both enjoy reminding each other of how we didn't really at the time perceive what was involved in all of that. And other people did though, see? And this happens so many times. There are other people who have a vision, so to speak. I'm not talking about some weird flaky thing. I'm just talking about people who are visionary. Such a man was Steve Jobs. When he was 21, together with a man, another man by the name of Steve, he was Steve Wozniak, they somehow succeeded in reducing a huge thing that would seemingly just about fill a room, a mass of vacuum tubes and all kind of other stuff, to something that, a box small enough that it could sit on your desk. And so they went to Atari, and they said, are you interested in this? And Atari said, we are not, what would we want with that? They went to Hewlett Packard, and the people at Hewlett Packard looked at the invention and said, what would we want with that? Jobs and Wozniak were undeterred. They didn't have any backing. Those corporations didn't see the vision that they saw. And so Steve Jobs sold his Volkswagen. That's a good one for Steve Lane. He sold his Volkswagen, and Steve Wozniak sold his calculator. And together with those sales, the amazing proceeds amounted to $1,300. That was the backing they had for proceeding. Well, they formed Apple Computers. Today, we just know it as Apple Incorporated or just Apple. The rest is history. Obviously, Steve Jobs was a visionary. He was propelled by a vision of what he saw in computing and what computers would do. But he got to a certain point, and we're kind of getting to the point of the story, where he realized that he was going to need management experience to help develop this company. You know the person he went to? went to a man by the name of John Scully. Who is John Scully? Well, he just happened to be the CEO of Pepsi. So he didn't exactly go to some unknown commodity. He went to a very known commodity, and they presented the desktop computer that they had built and said, here's our vision. We need your help. And not surprisingly, John Scully chairman of PepsiCo said, uh-uh. Well, Jobs didn't give up. 
Jobs not only didn't give up, he went back the second time. He went back the second time to talk to him about it, and he got turned down the next time as well. Two computer nerds go into the office of the CEO of PepsiCo. Well, it takes some, takes some something. Turned him down the second time. Steve Jobs was undeterred. He just felt that Scully was the man for the job. And so he went back the third time and he didn't know anything else to do except to just speak it as passionately as he possibly could. What his vision was from his heart, which he did. He got to the end and he said, he delivered this question. So since we're talking about penetrating questions, this is his culminating line with his final presentation to John Scully. Do you want to spend the rest of your life sell selling sugared water? Or do you want a chance to change the world? Scully accepted. What's my point? My point was up until that point, it was a compulsion kind of a thing. Something that he was being pressured to do. When he finally made that move, which I think you can perceive was in the beginning a move of sacrifice, he made it because something reached his heart, which is exactly what I'm trying to say to Christian people here today. Every man according as he purposes it in his heart, so let him give. Whether it's money or time or talent, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. For God loveth a cheerful giver. God loves people that give him what they have voluntarily because they love him. Attitude makes all the difference in service. Lastly, we have just a moment to talk about the third word, which is goal. And in these final words in verse 54, one of those questions that we're not really treating, but it's a part of this, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? In other words, Jesus put it into the realm not of what he could do, but what he should do. Could I get you to park on that for just a minute? Jesus took it in front of Peter from the realm of what he could do to what he should do. In other words, his goal was something outside of himself. He could have called 10,000 angels, but that wasn't what he should do because if he had called the 10,000 angels, he asks, how then are the scriptures going to be fulfilled? His highest calling was to fulfill the will of his Father, which was to come as the promised Redeemer, to go to the cross of Calvary, to give his life there for our sins. And I'm going to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. You and I, our highest goal and our best decisions are always made when our motivation is God's glory only.
Once we get into it, we murky the waters. We get in the way. Once we start thinking about what we could do rather than what we should do, we don't get the best decision. This is a great principle for us to apply to issues of Christian liberty. When sometimes we get into those arguments and waste a lot of time with it to be truthful over things that are questionable or gray areas. And I, many on many occasions in the course of ministry, I've had people come to me and say, what's wrong with this? And I always think to myself, you're asking the wrong question. And when I do that, I'm asking the wrong question. It's not what's wrong with this. It's what glorifies God. And I can prove this to you. I'm going to read you several verses, and you don't have to turn, but if you take notes, you can write them down. The first one I'm going to ask or read is in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and all these verses come right out of this whole idea of Christian liberty. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse number 12. Paul makes this statement, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Paul says, you know, there's a lot of things I could do. A lot of things that I could do. But I have some other principles that I'm working around and working with, and that is, he says to us in this verse, not everything is expedient, not everything's helpful. I can do it, but is it helpful? All things are lawful, but I'm not going to allow anything to control me other than the Holy Spirit. And then you get over to chapter 10 where this all sort of comes to a head. You know, they had this, these questions in Corinth about whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols and these different things that in that day that was divisive, in our day it's something else. And you get down to verse number 23 and he repeats this. He says, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. And he brings the third idea of edifying in. But when it all shakes out, he gets down to verse 31. Ask them if they know this verse at the wilds. Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. We make our best decisions in life when we make them for God's glory. Not what we can do, but what we should do. And that's right where Jesus was. We've just had a lot of attention in respect to the Olympics So let me take you back to the Olympics in Mexico City in 1968, which I know goes back maybe before some people here were born, but you know they happened. They get to the last event. The stadium in there was crowded because the last event was the marathon. Word wouldn't come. The marathon, 42 kilometers and they wanted to see the first guy that would get back to the stadium, go around the track, and be the winner. So there were thousands of them there. You know, the guy who did that was an Ethiopian. He entered the stadium. The crowd erupted with applause as he crossed the finish line. But lost, nowhere to be found, whom no one could see was another guy. He was an hour behind. 
kind of like I am today. His name was John Stephen Akwari from Tanzania. He ran 30 kilometers and his head was throbbing like it was going to explode. He had awful pains in his legs and he, he fell to the ground. There were people who were there for this kind of thing. They told him, you've got to retire. You've got to stop the race. You've got to get out of this. You're sustaining damage to your legs. Aquari said no. He got back up. They bandaged his knees. He hobbled the remaining 12 kilometers. Do the math. That's over seven miles. An hour behind the guy who crossed the finish line, Akwari, most of the people are gone by now because it's an hour later, enters the stadium, hobbles painfully around the track, and crosses the finish line. It's one of the most heroic moments in Olympic history. And a reporter interviews him later and asks him why he didn't drop out. And this is his answer. My country did not send me to start the race. They sent me to finish. Wow. Wow. Guy does that because he's not thinking about what he can do but what he should do. He's not thinking about himself to the point even of sustaining damage to himself. There's something higher. He wants to please his, please his countrymen. I'm thinking, beloved, this morning, you know, in Christian service, whether we're in it full-time or whether we're just full-time Christians, that's really the only thing that's going to keep you there. Do you get your eyes on yourself or you get your eyes on people or you get your eyes on things that happen or any of these types of things, the devil just gets in there and just goes to work. Jesus' willingness to serve the Father was so sacrificial that Ray Overholt wrote that song. Let me tell you a little bit more about how that happened and we'll be concluding. Like I told you, he was in show business. The year is 1958, and in fact, he was actually performing the evening he wrote the first verse in a nightclub in Battle Creek, Michigan. Somehow, he had the idea that he'd written so many other songs, secular songs, he, like I said, he was in showbiz, that maybe he should write a song about Jesus. And I'm not sure, maybe the Lord was the one that gave him that idea. I'm not totally sure, but somehow he had that idea. And he said, I didn't know very much about Jesus, didn't know very much about the Bible, but he did remember that his mother had told him a little bit about it, and so he opened the Bible and he started reading. And he got this, to this story about Jesus, where we are. He got to this story about Gethsemane. He read that verse where Jesus told Peter, put your sword away, I don't need your sword. I can call more than 12 legions of angels, and Overholt said later, he said, I had no idea it was more than 72,000. He said at the time, the title for the song that came into his mind sounded pretty good. He could have called 10,000 angels. 
It's all right, he only missed by 62. Got the point though, right? A little easier to say what he wrote than to get the whole thing out. He wrote the first verse that night in that nightclub, put the first verse in his guitar case, and walked out of the club, never to return. He finished the song, he sent it to a publishing house. The publishing house looked at the song, and boy, isn't this just the case, they were reluctant to publish it. Later, Overholt found himself sitting in a church service, and he had been asked to sing. He sang his song. He could have called 10,000 angels. The preacher got up after Overholt sang the song. The preacher himself, stirred by what he had heard, delivered a powerful message about Jesus Christ, his love. He could have called 10,000 angels. And the Holy Spirit gripped this man's heart. Overwhelmed by the love of Christ, he realized, I need him. I need him as my personal Savior. And he knelt there after that service and accepted Jesus Christ as his personal Savior. He went on to become a singer, a writer, songwriter, and a traveling preacher. He could have called 10,000 angels. I'm saying to you this morning, beloved, no matter where you sit, when our hearts are touched by the example of our Savior, when we see how he understood and tried to convey to Peter that, you know, serving God is such a privilege, when he showed such a pristine attitude, never colored by selfishness, always just wanting to do the things that please the Father, when his motivation was right, not outward compulsion, but inward zeal. He said to Peter, you can put your sword away, maybe another time. But right now, I don't need that. Peter was like you and me. He had lots of hiccups along the way. But it got through. He not only ended up serving the Lord with the balance of his life, but when he died, according to tradition, he was going to be crucified. And he said, no, I'm not worthy to die in the same way that my Savior died and he was crucified upside down. Wow. Got the point. Maybe there's hope for me and you. Father, thank you for your kindness, your patience, your love, for the fact that you are so long-suffering, for the fact that you give us so many opportunities to learn about you and love you and be guided by you. And I just pray, Father, you touch all of our hearts. That's why we came today. At least that's why we should have come. Put ourselves in a position for you to touch our hearts where maybe we need. Courage us. 
Maybe we need that gentle admonition that you gave Peter with those words. I don't know. Not me, my place. But I pray you'll touch us today. Help us to give you a loving, willing heart of devotion. Follow your example as we serve you. Could I just ask, are there those here this morning that Christian folk, you say, Pastor, I know Jesus is my Savior. Of that I have no doubt. But God has spoken to my heart this morning because that's how what I want to, I want to serve Jesus that way. And I want to serve Jesus because I have to. I want to serve Jesus because I want to. And God has touched my heart, spoken to my heart. Would you include me in the prayer this morning? Because I want to ask for prayer. And I'm going to pray myself that God will just give me grace. I want to do this thing right. Pray for me. God bless you, you, you. Someone else? Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving kindness. And Lord, I forgot to ask a minute ago if there was anybody here that needs Christ as Savior. So we'll trust you on that. I pray that if that's the case, Lord, that you'll just communicate the need to follow through. Find somebody, if further explanation is needed, that can just take a few moments and show anybody how to trust Christ and know they're born again. pray for those and for all of us that felt a special touch for all of us that just listened and knew that what you were telling us was real and you were confirming and reconfirming commitments we've already made help us to have the strength that we need to follow through but may a special blessing of guidance wisdom and power rest upon those who had a special burden today For I pray in Jesus' holy name, amen.